Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op this morning. You know, um, last week was just phenomenal. This this last week we had the Co-op, the Heroes, the Hall of Fame dinner, recognizing those four wonderful folks that have been inducted to the Cooperative Hall of Fame. And even before that, I went down to the Potomac Association of Housing Co-ops annual meeting in Virginia Beach. Uh, They asked me to be their keynote speaker, which I was really proud to do. And I taught a class about the financial clinic, about housing housing co-ops. You know, they honored me with a Lifetime Achievement Award. And that was really great. They didn't tell me, Annie and Ruthie, yet at the Potomac Association, didn't tell me about it, so they surprised me with that award, and I totally appreciate it. And then I left there and went out to California where I was a keynote speaker to the California Center for Cooperative Development. It's Kim Kuntz, uh, who was on the show during February during the Women's History Month. Uh, Kim is the executive director of the California Center for Cooperative Development. And so I went out there and did the keynote speech again and taught a class. So I just had a really great time out there, came back on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday we had the Hall of Fame dinner. And my body just said I had to rest and do a little bit of Oaks management, property management business on on Wednesday and Thursday. And then Thursday night the National Cooperative Bank had their annual meeting where they honored Rock USA. Rock was on last Thursday. We had five members from Rock's, the Rock Associates, Inc. Uh, That's the presidents and the members of their 220 manufactured home communities. And manufactured homes could be what, and I grew up, they were called trailer parks. And the trailer has a bad connotation between what people would say. And now, you can have a manufactured home, the home that's built in a manufacturing facility that's just as complicated and beautiful as any stick-built home. A stick-built is you build it outside. As a matter of fact, the manufactured homes sometimes are better because they're built inside, of, uh, inside a, of closed walls and therefore rain and snow don't get inside those joints and stuff. But anyway, so uh, Paul Bradley from... Rock USA was one of the four heroes inducted into the Hall of Fame, and five of his people came into the studio last week, and so we played musical chairs and they talked. But to my amazement, just totally shocked, Chuck Snyder from NCB and the folks from NCB gave me their highest honor, their highest award, um, which is called the Cooperative Spirit Award. And Chuck and his folks can keep a secret. 
because we were in meetings the week before. Uh, he just said, I'll see you at the annual meeting. That's all he said. And he kind of prepared me by saying, which he has done a couple other times, he wanted me to say a little bit about the radio program because National Cooperative Bank is our sponsor. They're the ones that have not only sponsored us financially, but they really have been there for us to inspire Pat Norton and I. Pat is the brains behind the, this organization, this everything co-op. She gets it done and schedules folks and send out press releases and then edits to each other's shows. So we definitely could not do it without a team. And Pat's a big, big, big part of that team. So I was honored twice last week or with the week and a half and just totally surprised in both cases, humbled and surprised. And this last three weeks, we've had members from this Hall of Fame. And today we were expecting uh, Rudy Hanley to be on the line. Rudy's a retired president and CEO of School's First Federal Credit Union out in California in Orange County. He is retired. I did have a chance to see and meet him at the dinner. So we don't know. We hope he's okay. So we're just going to talk about this cooperative business model, the principles, the different types of co-ops. And... I've said on the program before, about 10 years ago now, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up, and that is to promote and develop co-ops. So let me let me tell you a little story about what happened after the show last week. Um, if you recall, we had five people, Rock Associates, on the show last week from Montana all the way up to New Hampshire, so from from the U.S., they represented the United States of America. So, and what you find in manufactured homes are low-income to middle-income families. And in the studio, we had four white folk and one Mexican-American. Natividad was the Mexican-American up in New Hampshire. So we talked about, on the show, their different, Communities. We talked about their communities and the things that they have gotten out of forming co-ops were in these communities. What would happen is the resident would own their manufactured home and then they would pay a landlord rent to place that manufactured home on land. So the landlord would put in utilities, roads, he would put in the infrastructure so that a person could come in and put their manufactured home and they would pay him rent. So as populations grow, a lot of times you'd find these manufactured homes on the outskirts of town or in suburban areas. But as populations grow and you get gentrification, then there would be a demand for this land may want to put up a building, a commercial building, office space, or a mall or residential to bring in more income. So that the owner then would sell that property and the people would lose their piece of land and their homes. So Mike, so Paul Bradley and the folks at uh, Rock USA would come in and help the people to get funding to buy that land. So that was that's what their their 
but not only help them get the funding, but they would also get them the, the skills to operate the property, to manage the property, to solve the problems when they come up, and they do come up. So training is a big part of it. They call it the technical assistance and financing, getting the capital to buy these these properties. So after the show, Nativi Dodd told me that in her community, Rock USA helped them to buy their the land that we just talked about. So they bought the land, but there was another property owned by the same landlord that they were not able to get the tenants to buy it. So the tenants lost out, and it was about a 200-unit property. Sad news. The sad news is that two of the people in that property committed suicide. And Nativity Dad did not know how many, but a number of those people became homeless. Their homes were just taken from them. So you get that people and families that live in these manufactured home communities are very vulnerable. They don't have savings. They're low income, low to middle income people. So the likelihood is, and some of you out there know this one, is you, they live from paycheck to paycheck or they have more month than money. So I told Paul, I wrote him an a, a email and said, you guys save lives. I mean, you really got to get to the to the real truth of the matter. You save lives and you keep families together. What we talked about in here in the studio last week was the benefits to the families when when Paul and them come in and help them to buy their property, help them to learn how to manage their community, manage their business, how to resolve conflict when it happens, it happens, how to have elections, how to have a democratic one member, one vote organization. And they talked about community having fish fries and breakfasts and creating fellowship. So people end up knowing their neighbors and support their neighbors. And that's the first thing I saw when I started managing co-ops was how decisions were made that what what was best for the community. At least those properties that managed themselves well, they made decisions that were long-term, not just short-term return on investment kinds of decisions, what was best for the stockholder, even if that stockholder did not live in the community, maybe even live in a different country. But because these stockholders live in the community and they had a futuristic view of what's best for the community long-term, they made different types of decisions, decisions that are best for the community long-term. So that's why I'll end up liking co-ops. And I'll, we're going to take our first break, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about Rock USA and them saving lives and We'll talk some about credit unions, too. So please don't touch that dial. If you have any questions, call in at 1-800-450-7876 with any questions or comments, and we'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM. Information is power. And that's why WOL makes a very, very good partner. 
The reason that we are having this show and the National Co-op Bank sponsors it is to give you information about co-ops so that if you use it, if you use the information, you get power. Using the information gives the power. The power, the information by itself doesn't give you the power. Papa Sin, the first week we were on the show, brought that out. Papa Sin from Senegal. That it takes action. It's sort of like you need something to strike the gasoline to give the gasoline power. Gas by itself in a container is stored power, but it's not power in action. So information is stored power. Put action to it, and that's where you get the real power. So we were talking about the power that Rocky USA, Paul Bradley and company, all of the folks up there are using to help communities. And what did not come out on the show last week came out after the show was when they are not able to get the residents to buy their property. There's dire consequences, consequences of death and families becoming homeless. So it was a lot to celebrate last week with all of the all of the 220 communities that they have helped to save and bring life to and energize and their power in action. What's not talked about was those communities that they have not been able to save, if you will, those families that have gotten lost or homeless. I heard Congressman Ellison say once that a home to a family is like a bowl to making a cake. He said, have you ever tried to make a cake without a bowl? I mean, break some eggs and open them up and put some flour on it and some vanilla extract and just all of the ingredients, and you just have it on the counter somewhere just spilling over without the bowl that contains all of the ingredients. He said, you end up with a mess all over the kitchen. So that's synonymous to a house, to a family. A house is where everybody comes and eats and shares and and celebrate happy time and mourn sad time. But they do it together. And without the house, you end up with a mess. Homeless folks, people, kids running the streets or in jail or worse, and or death. So I just wrote Paul an email saying, you know, you guys do a great job. Y'all save lives. It's bigger than just, just, bigger than just saying, okay, we have a community that works now. And that's awesome. That's worth celebrating. But saving lives is worth celebrating too. Now, I found out there on the show that there's about 50,000 of these manufactured homes, parks, communities in the United States, 50,000. They have 220 of them that they've helped. And they say about 2% of them turn hands every year. So my math, 2% times 50,000 is about 1,000 of these homes that are sold off every year. So in 10 years, they've gotten... 220, so let's say 25 a year. So they've gotten 25 of the 1,000 a year. And that's really worth celebrating. That is awesome, awesome, awesome work. And there's 975 of them that get sold off. There's a lot more work to be done. 
And that just takes more money, more resources, more time, more technical assistance, capital to buy the land, people to help with the assisting, with the technical support to teach the folks on the ground how to manage their business. A lot to celebrate and a lot to do. So Paul said it would take about $20 million to do. I talked about 250 a year. 25% of those that come up. 25% of the thousand that comes up. 250 a year over a 10-year period would be 2,500. In 2,500, over 50,000, about one half of a percent, maybe. There's still a lot of folks out there that's dependent on the landlord, dependent on the, in the feudal system, it was called the Lord. Dependent on, in slavery, what were they called? The massa. Somebody over you that you're dependent on for your livelihood, for your life. If you get a good master, you, it's cool. You're good. If you get a bad one, you pay dearly. So the corporate model helps people to have control over their life, control over their destiny. I saw that sign at Greenbelt Homes. Cooperate, cooperatives give people the opportunity to control their destiny. Right here, close to the studio, Greenbelt, Maryland. Right where BWI Parkway 295 intersects with 495, going north from D.C. Greenbelt homes built in the 30s and 40s. 1,600 homes, very vibrant community, very vibrant co-op. Built for low-income and middle-income people teaching them how to control their business. And it's a big business, 1,600 homes, particularly now. When they built it, it was out in the wilderness from D.C. in the 30s and 40s. Right now, it's in the suburbs of D.C. So, yeah, 50,000 of these manufactured home parks. Rock USA, Friends, partners have reached 220 of them in 10 years. I'm trying to say, what would it take to do 10 times more, 12 times more? What about 2,500 in the next 10 years? Still a small percentage of the total, but it helped a lot of families, a lot of kids, save lives. Dame Pauline Green said that co-ops help people to come out of poverty with dignity. And that's the dignity. That's what we saw in this studio last week. We saw the smiles, the empowerment of people have control over their own lives, control over their homes, control over their family, not dependent on a massa, a lord, a landowner. And I could not get from Nativity Diet last week, why would the same owner, 
the 90-unit property that she lived in that he sold to the residents. The 200-unit he sold to a corporation. If he's going to get the same money, why wouldn't he sell to the residents? I don't know the the details. If he were if the same money or if it happened quicker, I don't know what what he was looking for in the transaction. But he sold to a corporation, ended up in two suicides and homeless people. When he sold to the residents, you've got people living there that have control over their over their destinies. And if you were in the studio and you listened to those folks from those five different communities, it was just awesome, the, the smiles and the excitement. And another lady told me at the end of the show she was shy before she started Lori. And Lori was nowhere shy talking about her community and her family. She was not at all shy talking about that they had a home and her husband had a major health issue and they lost their home. So they found this, I think it was called Green Acres Community. They moved there. They have new life in their family. Literally and figuratively. So Paul and them are doing it. And that's what happens in co-ops all over. And when we want to take our next break, we'll come back and talk about the different types of co-ops. The idea was we were going to talk about credit unions and the principal cooperative principles. Our intent was to talk about credit unions today. So we'll talk a little bit about them um, and what they do. If you have any questions or comments, please call in at 1-800-450-7876, with any comments or questions. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL at 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We were talking about Rock USA and the the miracle that they do every day in saving lives and helping keeping families together. You know, it's, it's awesome work, this working in co-ops. And that's why I ask the question of people that are on the show, do they like what they work? And I get a resounding yes in different kinds of ways they say it. But everybody loves to work because they're helping people. They're helping people help people to help people. Paul Bradley and the folks at Rock USA are helping communities. So they, they end up training boards of directors and members how to manage their properties. And then these members, they end up helping these boards help the members in the community. 
And then they created an organization called Rock Associates. So these five members that came on the show last week, they end up going out and helping other communities. They help the communities that they talk, the 220 communities that they talk and figure out what best practices are, how they can support each other. And then they go out and they can help create other communities. People helping people helping people. So that's why people really love working in this business. So if you want a business, if you want to work and you want to uh, be in a, an organization that really helps people and you really feel good about it. And we had a lady on this show from Finland, and Finland this year won the United Nations Covenant Award of being the happiest people in the world. In Finland, a cold country. So I didn't quite understand it when I was talking to Marine, Marine, Marinja. And she said that there are 25% of the households in Finland belong to cooperatives, and she belonged to three different co-ops, as I do, credit union, housing co-op, um, I'm going to join REI. Oh, I, I belong to CPA, Community Purchasing Alliance. And I'm looking to join REI. So I've had people on the program say that they, particularly in farm country, they may belong to five different co-ops. So she said, this from Finland, that the reason that people in Finland are happy is because they belong to co-ops. And they help people, help people, help people. So there are four different types of co-ops that you could join or start or do business with. The first type of worker co-ops, if the employees own or control the business, is called a worker cooperative. If the owners are the employees, the workers. So that could be any business you can think of. Think of suppose Fannie Mae was an employee-owned company or IBM, Ford. All of these small businesses, particularly those businesses owned by baby boomers. Too often those businesses shut down because they don't have anybody to buy them. But if we could get organizations like the Rock USAs of the world to come in and the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives are doing this work and there's more room to, for it to be done, if could help the employees buy the business. If the employees buy the business, the business stay in place. The workers normally live in the community, so the money stays in the community, and it turns around five to eight times, so the community is better off, as opposed to if this is owned by somebody who lives outside the community and they take the profits out of the community. So the employees are much better off. They normally make more money. They have better benefits. They also are run more efficiently because they know what how to make the, make the business run because they're down there doing it, whatever the doing is of that particular business. So it seems like it makes perfect sense to have the employees own the business. I also went out to Cincinnati with union 
co-op, Cincinnati Union Cooperative Movement. I didn't understand why unions, it seemed like to me if you had a co-op and the employees owned the business, you wouldn't need a union. But what I was told, and it makes perfect sense, because of my experience with housing co-ops, is sometimes you get members that get greedy just like shareholders get greedy. I mean, presidents or treasurers, they get greedy, and they'll want either for control or for money or both. So if you have a union in there, it also helps to make sure that things work according to policies and procedures. So that made really, really perfect sense. You have checks and balances. The more checks and balances you have, I think the better off an organization is. So that's worker co-ops, any kind of business, any kind of business, and a huge shout-out for unions and the role that they can play in this. Next next type of business is a consumer business. That's owned and controlled by the people that uses the products and services. Examples, housing co-ops, these manufactured homes. They're owned and controlled by the people that uses the facilities, that uses the apartments, that uses the manufactured homes. They own and control it. The consumer does. Credit unions, another example, owned and controlled by the members that put their deposits into a credit union, have checking accounts there, get loans there. In this world of consumer co-ops, you have a, a clinic, a health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin, that's owned and controlled by the patients. So the policies are patient-centric, not some investor. We're going to do something that gives the investor most money, most return. It may be good for the patient, may not be. But in this case, the patients are the ones that are setting up. Here's how this works. This is how to make it work for the patients, for the members of the credit union, for the housing, manufactured homes, or multifamily housing. And every now and then, there's a scattered site. It could be just homes in a community, and then people join, come together to, to create a co-op. So what you have in a consumer cooperative is the focus is on what's best for the member. And I think it was Share Credit that was on that said their motto is people first, planet second, and profit third. People, planet, profit. Profit's important. I've learned this in working with on co-op, I mean on nonprofit boards. Is if you do not end up with more money at the end of the day or the year or the month than you spent, you're eventually going to go out of business. And if you end up with less money, a deficit, then you will go out of business. So making a surplus or profit, yeah, you have to do it to grow, to sustain the business, to replace equipment or land or so forth. You have to have more coming in than going out. So profit is important, but it's just not the most important when it comes to cooperatives. People first, planet second, and profit. We're in a shareholder world. This is not true for all capitalistic um, businesses. 
But for the most part, they are profit first, profit second, and profit third. That's what they're interested in. If they're interested in the customer is because it'll give them the most profit. If they're interested in employees, it's because it'll give them the most profit. But there's always this contention, this struggle between the owner and the employee, unless it's owned. <laughs> the owner are the employees. But if you go all the way back to the feudal systems, you had the, the land barons and you had the peasants. And the land barons were trying to give the peasants as little as possible and extract as much work out of them as possible. And up pops slavery. That's exactly what slavery does. How do you extract the most out of the worker if that's with a whip or a carrot? How do you extract the most out of the worker and give them as little in return as possible? Slavery. Then you go, this capitalistic system, we talk about we don't have classes in this capitalistic system, at least that's what I was taught in ninth grade civics. We don't have this land barons down to the peasants, different kind of class system, but we do. We have it here. And it's this constant struggle between those that have and those that don't have. And the folks that have seem like they're always trying to get more. And I don't, I've never kind of understood that except for they think it's their right whether it's white supremacy or just that's our right, because it seems like it doesn't make any difference which culture you go into, black, brown, white, is that once the people that have get more, they get a lot, then they want more. I saw that in Sierra Leone when I first went there. It's black on blacks. People that have got more and more and more and more, and the people that didn't have got less and less and less and less. This cooperative world, the owners are the members. And that's why in a cooperative world, the employee can get more. Or in a housing situation, the housing co-ops, the rent particularly over time is a lot less because they make better decisions. They get better control over it. They don't have the profit motive. Start to say greed. And just profit by itself is not necessarily greed, but they don't have the profit motive. So they're not trying to make a profit so they don't have to have increases on top of increases on top of increases of the profit side, profits out of it. So it's how do you get enough money to pay all your expenses plus have some savings for future investments? So this co-op model works. So we talked about the worker cooperative and the consumer cooperative. And next are the next two are, well, food co-ops, by the way, could be an employee-owned food co-op, worker cooperative, or it could be a consumer cooperative where the people that buy the food in this business own the business. And I've heard of several of them, and I have one on the show where, the food co-op could be a hybrid. It could be both a worker co-op and the one I think in Seattle, the the consumers own 60% of the business and the workers own 40% of the business. So you could have that hybrid. 
So the next two are the the purchasing cooperative and the marketing co-op. And I think a lot of times it's like a farmer. A farmer could belong to a purchasing co-op and a marketing co-op, two different businesses. The purchasing co-ops helps the farmer to buy what they need in order to produce the food or the livestock or whatever they're producing. And they can normally buy it at a lower price and get better quality. And if it belongs to a marketing co-op, then they can sell those products to different markets and get a better price for their product. So we're going to take our final break for the day, and we'll be right back, and we'll talk more about these different types of co-ops. And we'll spend a little bit more time talking about credit unions. But we'll be right back. Don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. The National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to give you the information you might need to get the power to control and solve your community problems. We're talking about the different types of co-ops, and when we left for the break, we were talking about a purchasing co-op and a marketing cooperative. So in a purchasing co-op, we talked about the farmers, but what's also beginning to happen is artists. Artists are beginning to form purchasing co-ops. And so artists will come together. Let's say you get a group of musicians, and there was a group here in D.C. that was, was doing this. And they buy housing together. They may buy some building where they could both practice and or perhaps even play. So I've seen Ujama in Pittsburgh, a group of maybe African-American artists, women, came together. Some make beads, some do wood, some do artwork, I mean drawings, paintings. So they bought a building, and in the back, they could do their artwork. They could produce their products, and in the front, they could sell it, storefront. So some people used the back to produce. Some did their production in their homes or their other places, their galleries, and they brought it to the storefront, and some people produced there. So individually, they would not have had the resources to have a storefront, and they said what they ended up doing was just going out and vending on the you know on the streets or different fairs in the summertime or but now they have a storefront and they can go out and vend so it's just a way of coming together now there's a group called CPA which my company is a member community purchasing alliance and they started out helping nonprofits, churches, schools, charter schools, 
other nonprofits buy stuff. It could be trash collection. And you wouldn't think of that as trash collection. There's nothing sexy about trash collection, except that they were able to help people maybe save 50% on their trash bill. Particularly the churches. And found out that churches may be very good at saving souls, but they weren't good at running the business. And so they could come in and help them by utilities, copy machines. So different things that they could end up helping people do to save money. And then the business CPA would go out and work with the vendors, the copy people, and they would work out the contract that is good and best for their members. So when you join a purchasing cooperative, you get experts in, in that field, and that's what the CPA people are. They become the experts. And they're also helping with solar panels. So they go out and they bid work with the vendors so the vendors will come back and give their members the best deal for solar panels, for electricity. So that's what the purchasing co-op does. And now then these farmers <clears throat> could perhaps join a marketing co-op or start one. Cabot Creamery is an example. Lando Lakes. The Cranberry people. Ocean Spray. They're all marketing co-ops where the farmers will take their cranberries or their milk or whatever they're producing and the marketing co-op will add value to them and then market them. They add value by making cheese or the milk products or the cranberry juice or whatever they may make, cranberry sauce. So they add value so that the farmer gets bigger, better price and a more stable price for his products and this marketing co-op gets the expertise for dealing with all of these different markets and creating contracts that are good and best for their farmer, their members. Looks like a win-win. Now, the Department of Agriculture is the knows the most about co-ops that I have found in the federal government. HUD used to know a whole lot about them. They don't know as much, the people there. I never have understood, and I've asked this question on the air several times, is why is it that housing co-ops outperform apartment buildings in every aspect you can think of, every variable? The only one it doesn't, it doesn't give money, the housing co-op doesn't give money to the land barons, the capitalists. If they're the profit, it gives it back to its members. But everything else, the, the plants, the physical plants better off, the roofs are normally better, the windows are better, the hallways, the grounds are normally better because the people in the co-op will make decisions that is what makes that physical plant better. The people inside have a sense of community, not only because they know their neighbors and they help each other out, they also have a voice. They have a say in what goes on in the co-op. They also learn how to work with police, politicians. They learn the importance of voting, one member, one vote. 
So it's just much better out. They make a profit, so it's better financially. They get a bigger profit. And some of the research that had been done talks about, I think it was 7.1% return that they got off of the money they invested over time. But they did not include in a co-op, you get to write off the property taxes that you pay, your percentage of the property taxes, and you get to write off your percentage of the interest. Apartments, you don't get that. There's no write-offs. The other thing is, if there is a savings in rent, it's called an opportunity cost. If you live in an apartment in Atlanta, they, one of the properties they looked at was a property in Atlanta where a two-bedroom was running $500 a month. When this study was done, an apartment down the street, same prop, square footage, same type of apartment, was costing 700 a month. So that member was paying $200 less than they would have made if that co-op wasn't there. They would have been paying the apartment price. Most of the time, these members are low income, and they don't get the savings. They go out and buy a house to get those write-offs and to get the appreciation. Sometimes in these affordable co-ops, you don't get a whole lot of appreciation, but you do get the, like the, at least that 7.1%. You get the write-offs, and you don't have to pay the bigger amount. But if you had taken the 2% of $200 per month that they save plus the write-offs, uh, the, the return on their investment would have been in like, I don't know, 80, 90, 100% return on investment, if not 2 or 300% return on investment by being in a co-op. So every variable you could think of, the co-op outperformed the apartment building. But the federal government is not putting money in the co-ops. Why? My answer is very simple. Citizen United came along, they got that passed so that people with money could buy politicians, and when they buy those politicians, those politicians make policies and procedures that help out the rich. Yeah, it seems to be that simple, that cycle. So if the policy and procedure helps out the majority of the folk, people, now, and that's this whole tax bill that just was passed. That tax bill helps out the rich at the expense of the rest of us. Now, if you make a billion dollars, if you have a billion dollars worth of assets or more, then I'm not talking to you. That's, the rest of us is those that have less than a billion, probably it's less than two or three billion dollars in assets. Because those are the folks that are making the money. Now, this is just not a U.S. problem, by the way. It's a world problem. Oxfam did a study that said that 82% of every new dollar made in 17 went to the wealthy, the one percenters around the world. The bottom 50% in the U.S., that bottom 50% of people that make between $0 a month, a year, and $51,000. 50% of Americans are in that category. And 51000 in D.C. don't get you very much. New York, California, it just does not buy. It's the working poor. Poverty is in the twenty-seven, twenty-eight thousand is what the government says. But you can be still poor, making fifty thousand if you've gotten one two thousand dollars worth of housing costs 
and all of the different costs that it takes to live in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. So co-ops are an answer. Matter of fact, it's the only answer that I know of. But we've got to get politicians in place, and please get out and vote. We've got to get politicians in place that would create policies like how HUD spends its money, how HUD spends its money or how Department of Agriculture spends their monies, what kind of tax breaks, tax reform we really get. So one group said that the tax law that they just passed gives more, transfer more wealth to the rich. It only surpasses slavery. Slavery gave a lot more money to the rich than the poor, and this tax does the same thing. Please get out and find your co-op. Either start one to solve your community problems or join one. We'll be back next Thursday, and in the meantime, please have a cooperative week. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, and 95.9 FM.